This is Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America. This podcast is half history and half science, and this month we are leaving the brain science and anatomy behind, and we're talking social science. Now here's the thing, I'm not from the Midwest, so each episode, after I do the research, I sit down with someone who is from here, and together, we explore famous persons, inventions, and social trends that got their start in the middle of America. And joining me in the studio today is a dear friend of mine and one of the first people that I met when I moved to Omaha, Jason Schwartz. Hey, Ellen. Glad to be here. And you were born. You're you're from here, right? From from Omaha. Yep. Cool, cool. Uh, and now I've asked Jason to join me in the conversation because he has worked in so many different jobs, more environments than almost anyone I know. Uh, construction, restaurants, office jobs. So I thought that you would be a pretty good person to weigh in on today's episode about the great Midwestern invention of office cubicles. Really. <laughs> Cubicles? Yep. That's oh, the man. Yeah, yeah, that's the episode you get to be here for. <laughs> so, I mean, you, and you've worked in tons of different places, which is why I thought that you would be a good partner to have along with this historical journey. Uh, did I miss any place that you've worked? I- it's, it's been a lot of different things. Uh, went to culinary school out in Colorado, so lived and uh, worked out in the mountains, loved it. Went back and got my undergrad a little bit later, and I've been working in, uh, in office spaces for about the last nine years now. And so you are, you're in an office in a cubicled space. Is that how you would describe it right now? Uh, yeah, I would say it's cubicle. Gotcha. Okay, so I think you'll appreciate this about the origins of the cubicle. So what we know as the cubicle today actually owes its origins to the beautiful lush green forests of West Michigan and the small town of Zeeland, Michigan. It's on the banks of of the giant Lake Michigan. This is Amy Ausherman speaking about the town of Zeeland. Now she is the corporate archivist for Herman Miller, the West Michigan furniture company that created what became the office cubicle. Now in the early 1900s, Lake Michigan would have been this big like water highway transporting goods and people and a ton of timber. I think if people haven't been there, it's, it's like an ocean, so it's a very big part of the culture and how people who live there spend their time and, and think about this place. But it's always been a small town. You had Dutch people moving over that had the hand skills to make wood furniture, and then also um, in West Michigan, you know, lots of forests, lots of raw materials. So West Michigan, and specifically the larger city near Zealand called Grand Rapids, was at one time nicknamed Furniture City. And we're talking the early 1900s here. By this time, there were more than 40 furniture companies in the area. And one of those companies was destined to become the well-known Herman Miller Company. But no one named Herman Miller ever actually worked at the company. Okay, so Seriously? just yeah, 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 so just wait for it. So in 1909, a young man named DJ Dupree starts working for a company called Michigan Star Furniture Company. And at the time, DJ saw this as a temporary gig. You know, DJ grew up in the area, kind of thought there was nothing for him in West Michigan and had plans to leave after high school but got this job Then something else happened, and he fell in love with a woman named Nellie, Nellie Miller. Now, everybody called her Nell for short. And then once he met Nell Miller, fell in love, you know, obviously figured he'd be sticking around for a while and wanted to apply his skills as a businessman to, you know, Michigan Star and thought he could run it better than it was being run. So DJ purchases the company. He just goes ahead and does it with the help of his father-in-law, and then he names it Herman Miller, you know, as kind of a thank you for the financial support to buy the company. By 1923, he assumed control of Michigan Star Furniture Company and then renamed the company Herman Miller, obviously as a thank you. But then also Herman Miller himself was involved in the furniture industry, um, a name that people trusted. And from there, Herman Miller not only becomes trusted, but hugely successful. 
This was one of the first companies to produce, quote, modern furniture in the U.S., and later the company name became synonymous with mid-century modern design. Basically, designs, modern designs, from about the 1930s to 60s. And Herman Miller designers created some of just the most iconic furniture pieces that we have in America and even worldwide. For many of us, we may not know the name Herman Miller, but we have most likely sat in one of their chairs or seen them on TV. You know, you watch TV and you see somebody on a news station sitting in a mirror chair or you watch Mad Men and you see an Eames executive lounge chair in Don Draper's office or an Eames molded fiberglass chair in your cafeteria as a kid. So our products sort of occupy all of these different spaces that people are in constantly and they might not even notice. So for a lot of us, our first Herman Miller experience was likely what they call the Eames shell chairs, as these chairs ended up in a lot of offices and schools, because these molded fiberglass chairs could be reproduced pretty easily, and they were super durable once they were made. So think about lecture halls or cafeterias where you just need seating that is durable and easily cleaned. Definitely sat in these chairs. Definitely had one in my home office up until about like three years ago. It's kind of the iconic chair of the schools in the 80s, 90s, probably into the early 2000s. I mean, we could seriously do a whole episode just about this chair. And we do have pictures of the design on our website, kios.org, to pay homage to it because this 1950s design belongs to probably the most famous architectural design couple that we have to date, and that is Charles and Ray Eames. And as a side note, Charles Eames is from Missouri, so Midwest shout out. Uh, But most importantly for this episode, the Eames shell chair was the first product to sell in mass quantities for Herman Miller, for an institutional setting. So this opened up a whole new world of opportunities for them. Selling a thousand of those chairs got leadership thinking about how else they could diversify the business with regards to an institutional context. And luckily for DJ Dupree of the Herman Miller Company, he would soon meet a man named Robert Probst. And Probst was an inventor, an artist, and a sculptor, was working at the time with his wife at a company that he had started called the Probst Company, and that they designed architectural sculpture and playground equipment. So because of his background, Robert Probst was always working with this like sculptural, artistic eye. At the time, he was designing these pretty wacky cement playground sculptures. Um, so this is this is the man who we're talking about, okay? Uh, Robert Probst, and he's, he's kind of this kooky guy. So to find out more about Robert Probst, I spoke with another expert at Herman Miller. This is Joseph White, who I think it's safe to say that Joseph is a pretty big fan of Bob Probst. Probst, yeah, it's um, P-R-O-P-S-T, but it is pronounced Probst. Um, you know, he's sometimes when people ask, you know, if you could meet any person um, uh, living or otherwise, who would it be? Um, Prost is definitely on my list. Um, I think that he was a, a very visionary thinker um, who was this kind of, you know, kooky professor kind of personality. Definitely ahead of his time. So uh, Joseph has spent a lot of time thinking and reading about Probes because he is Herman Miller's director of futures and insights. So my job is to look at the human experience of work. I break it down into its component parts, but then look at how we can put them back together in new ways to achieve better results. So Probst is brought on to the Herman Miller Company to start the Herman Miller Research Division, helping them to expand the company into an institutional context. But the first thing that he does is set up his own office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He wanted to be there to be closer to the University of Michigan. Amy and Joseph explain how this got started. And when Probst got there, obviously Herman Miller was a furniture company, and we sent him furniture to set up his office, and he didn't really think that the furniture fulfilled the needs of the work that they needed to do. He looked at it and was like, none of this is going to work for me. This is not how I work. And Probst was just sort of a a problem solver, um, and anything that he deemed you know, a problem that he could solve, he sort of tackled. 
So yeah, basically he walks in and the furniture that they've provided him, like he thinks that it's subpar. So we should talk a little bit about what the office space might have looked like that he was presented with when he walked in and what most office spaces looked like in the early 1960s. Now, it may be surprising, but this current trend of open offices that we have nowadays, meaning where everyone is working together in a big room, that was the norm in the 60s. Unless you had an executive status job, you were working in a large open room filled with rows of desks. Sometimes I wonder why we're going back to the large tables filled with people. Yeah, that was the original office. What we think of as this super like hyper trendy thing now. That's what originally was happening. And then, and as the 1960s progressed, another thing began to happen. The baby boomer generation was graduating from college and beginning to work in these spaces. And with them came this ideology that physically breaking down walls can also break down metaphorical barriers, which is what was happening in the 1960s, right? And this push wasn't only for the offices, this was a push to break down walls in other institutions, like schools too, for example. So there was just this overall movement towards breaking down walls and barriers. So to get a better sense of the times, I sat down with a very special expert on the era, my father. For many in your audience who are uh, baby boomers, and there's probably a few, including yours truly, uh, there was a general spirit of adventure and that things could be improved, needed to be improved, so let's get on with it. So there you go. Let's get on with it. Get, get on with it. Make the change. So my father, Gordon Newton, was born in 1946. By the 1960s, he was working in an experimental school in Southern California, one of the many at the time referred to as schools with no walls. Here he is explaining to me the shape of their building. And, and this recording was done in his living room, so you can hear my voice in it too. We used a, kind of a round octagonal shape. To, and they were connected to other buildings through hallways and overpasses that kids could travel to if they needed to, like auditoriums and so on. But literally there were no walls inside. And then once you walk inside the classroom, you had room for walls, but you would notice that the walls were generally all pulled back, like an accordion. Or if you needed silence for like a silent reading period, you could get that by pulling the doors shut in a certain way. Uh, it sounds like a really cool concept. And I've worked in a couple spaces where we have large open spaces that are similar to that, where you can shut off part of the room or open it up to where you can have three separate rooms or it can be one, depending on how large an audience you have. Very much fitting in with the theme of these places, these schools with no walls and offices trying to break down the walls. So this is the cultural context that Probst is working within when he was brainstorming a solution for his workspace, which would later become a, a solution for larger workspaces. And eventually he would call his solution the Action Office. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sound effects, cue. Yeah. So pew, the, pew, pew. The Action Office is sometimes uh, called AO1 for short. Uh, here's Joseph White and Amy Osherman speaking on the opportunity that Bob Probst had laid out in front of him in the early 60s. Then he was given the charge to say, all right, well, if you think you can design something better, then go for it. You know, he, he wasn't, he was originally brought on to Herman Miller not to design more office furniture, but to figure out a way to look for application in other markets. But through his own personal needs around the way he worked, he ended up developing and prototyping what became Action Office. And so in 1964, we introduced Action Office One, this kit of components, you know, whether it was a standing desk or somewhere where you could use your dictaphone. You know, this beautiful sculptural object that was designed actually in partnership between um, Bob Probst and George Nelson. Um, and actually in Space Odyssey 2001, um, when they arrive at the space station and there's uh, a receptionist um, sitting there waiting to greet them in a little pink pillbox hat and uniform, um, she's actually at an Action Office One standing height desk or an interpretation of that. So the Action Office One was so sleek and modern that it was actually in the movie 2001 Space Odyssey. Wait, he had standing desks too? Right. That's like the, the, the modern trend and what everyone's trying to go to. I know. 
I know. It doesn't sound like it would have been something from 50, 60 years ago. Right? Again, we were already there. And like Joseph White said earlier, so ahead of his time. Uh, here, here's an image of, of that desk just so you can get it in your mind. And again, all of these images are on our website on KIOS.org. So here's, here's the desk itself. Super sleek, tall, standing desk, beautiful wood, sleek metal. And, and also, I'm sure you can tell from looking at it, this looks nothing like an office cubicle. There are no walls. No, that thing's like, it looks like it's felt lined chrome legs right and so obviously like at this point it was just this collection of different components that could be used in all these different configurations and in this way it would work very well within the open space parameters of the time it embraced the concept of open offices but it would also give individuals whatever they needed for their individual work which is also not unlike the idea with the schools with no walls in terms of meeting the needs of individual kids mm -hmm. So here's Dad again talking about the needs of different school children and the architecture around them. You'd find that some of those kiddos, even though they're in second grade, they're reading two years above grade level. Some of them, you know, God help them, are reading two years below grade level. And that is not being helped out by the fact that you got one teacher teaching all the subjects to all the kids inside a box. I mean, they can't even get out of that box unless it's to go to the restroom. So, yeah, there's, there's, there is this relationship between the space, the architecture, and the way people think and interact together. It's interesting to, to hear it like that. It feels like from the time of that open concept, then schools largely, and probably offices, largely went to more of a copy-repeat look for efficiencies and making everything the same. But like you say, we weren't there yet. The Action Office one is not a box. It did not have walls. It had all these cool bits and pieces, like a standing desk. But obviously there were problems or else it would have taken off. So here's Amy with some of those problems. They were freestanding furniture pieces. They were partially made of like fine wood and cast aluminum. They ended up being really prohibitively expensive for most people and it didn't sell very well. So, you know, in a way, sort of a failure. The, the design of the beauty of that object started to impede the flexibility and its functionality. But folks sort of went back to the drawing board with these ideas of the different modes of work and put that research into Action Office 2, which was introduced in 1968, and that is a panel-based system. So lightweight panels and various heights and widths that were, were able to be independently positioned. So it was this flexible system that businesses could integrate into their workspace. You might be thinking, all right, so here we are, we're talking about a cubicle now, right? But not quite yet. The Action Office 2 is not a cubicle. The AO2 system is what they called it. And yes, there were walls, but these walls were all various heights and you could change the position of the desk and there were multiple ways to fold and attach all these parts. You could change the configuration within just a matter of hours. So very much like the schools with no walls and their accordion panels hung from the ceiling. And importantly, the walls of the action office were never supposed to be put at right angles. When you look at some of the diagrams or floor plans, there, there isn't a grid to be found. You know, it's much more um, creating these more like 120 degree, almost kind of honeycomb-like um, structures um, that have uh, openings in various places. And Amy said the same thing. She used the same language of a honeycomb structure with open sides. And this goes back to a basic concept of architectural design having to do with the human psychological need to feel both safe and also free to observe the outside world at the same time. This is called the theory of prospect and refuge. Prospect and refuge is a kind of a planning concept. I always kind of cringe at using this analogy, but it's kind of the classic one where, you know, it's like back in the caveman days, if you're in your cave that's up on a cliff, um, you know, the three sides of you, your back and your sides are protected, but you can see out over the landscape beyond. So you have a great prospect, but you also have a refuge that you can withdraw to quickly. That is deeply uh, ingrained in how we navigate through the world. So you can kind of create that situation in a microcosm in an open plant, for instance, in a workplace. The prospect and refuge is very similar to like my pod now where we have four people in there. Um, it's a 
fairly large space, a little bit bigger than this recording studio, and uh, we have an opening to it. We can talk to people that walk by. Uh, we can also scoot our way back to our desk and put our headphones on and, uh, and protect ourselves from uh, the outside influences. That's very cool that that's, you guys are still kind of maintaining some of this original idea that the AO2 system had in place. So, and it, it also sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your cubicle or your pod is not at right angles. Uh, we are always right and at right angles. <laughs> I thought the customer was always right, Jason. I'm sorry, was I obtuse? I, oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, these are just really acute. Oh, my They're God. They're coming to me. <laughs> but truly, is your pod set up with, with right angles, or is it more like 100, 120 degrees? Uh, yeah, so they're all set up at uh, right angles. Interesting. And so that is something that Probst was very certain about. He said, you know, that these are never supposed to be put at right angles. Uh, and actually, in 1968, when AO2 was released, Bob Probst also put out this book, and it was kind of a manifesto, The Office, A Facility Based on Change. That was the name of his book, and it laid out all of his ideas on how the office space should be used. Here's Joseph again. He's looking through a series of diagrams in this book, and he points to the last diagram on the page where underneath it, it just says, bad. The fifth diagram is a person in a box and underneath it it says bad and it basically says don't ever do this this is awful to the human condition it really starts to degrade a person's sense of self-worth and all of those sorts of things but that's exactly unfortunately what came of this idea action office was never supposed to be a cubicle it was pretty well known by the end of his life that probes was incredibly disappointed and actually pretty guilty about what the action office had become. He was really upset by the end of his life of what action office got turned into. It's kind of sad that at the end of the day, it just turned into the four sides that he was adamantly against. Yeah, and just having one box is bad enough. But Joe says that the real kicker is when you put all of these identical boxes together in one space. And if you imagine all of them at the same height and you can see from one end of the building to the other, like something inside of you just kind of makes a sad sound, you know, because it's kind of like what a depressing place, what a de depressing view. There's no variety. There's nowhere for your eye to go. Um, and so all of a sudden you start experiencing this like low grade creative death in your brain versus if you look out across a beautiful landscape where you see rolling hills, tall trees, short trees, um, and you have all of this variety for your eye to flow across the landscape. So the original kit had variety in height, so that you're varying that typography across um, the view. I mean, he didn't mean to do it, you know? Like, Probes didn't mean to give us low-grade creative death. <laughs> but but this brings to mind something for me, too. I mean, we're both sitting here kind of chuckling, right, at this idea of low-grade creative death mm -hmm. as two people who work in cubicles doing creative things. Yeah. So, I mean, so regardless of why why we find humor in it, like, it it's a thing. There's been comedic fodder coming from the office space for a long time. So I do have a clip for us to listen to. This is from the movie Office Space. Uh, this is Peter, the main character, when he goes to see a hypnotherapist because he's feeling so bad. So I was sitting in my cubicle today and I realized ever since I started working, um, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. And see, we're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? So I find humor in it partly because I have worked in so many different fields and industries that to me, Working a standard Monday through Friday-ish job allows me the freedom to do so many other things. So I think I hear what you're saying as because it's not our whole life. And so we can still kind of separate ourselves and make jokes from it. 
because we do get to go home at the end of the day. Yeah, and sometimes when it is a real tough day in the office, it's good to have a little bit of lighthearted humor. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the other thing is I know that a lot of the humor is not just from the cubicle, right? But the, the, the humor is coming from this idea of the office space in a grand sense, but the cubicle is still iconic in what that means. Yeah. And I think in large part that's because so much of it is the, the idea of being stacked up in rows, you know? And so even though this panel-based system offered flexibility, it could also be used to fit as many people into one space as possible. And I mean, financially, that's just what makes sense. And so there were other designers at the time who Joseph refers to as the other thinkers. And so around the time of the AO2 invention, these other thinkers start to take note that you can be used for a financial advantage. That financial quantification of what was actually happening there really started to drive the conversation. So rather than it being a conversation around the value of human experience, it became a conversation around return on investment for real estate spend. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I've actually had smaller cubicles, but they had taller walls. Uh, it was almost, it was like a large closet. That sounds terrible. It was so nice, though. What? Yeah. Why did you like that? Uh, because nobody could see me. So if I wanted to engage with the outside world, I absolutely could. But if I just needed to concentrate and stay at my computer and get things done, I could just put on some headphones and I wasn't aware of all of the other distractions in the office. So in terms of like prospect and refuge theory, you are all refuge and <laughs> no prospect unless on your own terms. To a degree, yes, that would definitely be true. Well, um, unfortunately for you, Jason, uh, I mean, cubicles became the norm for sure. But then when the dot-com boom hit, as we all well know by now, in the early 2000s, cubicles started to get a pretty bad rap. And open office plans, once again, seemed super appealing. But this time, opening the office meant breaking down the cubicle walls. Yeah. And one of the things I've noticed with a lot of coworkers that I have that are in open office environments is the walls may be down, but now there's a big trend towards getting noise-canceling headphones. That way people can put up their own personal wall and listen to podcasts. Or music or whatever, or white Audio noise. Books, yeah. yeah. But we do, humans, we have a way to put up those walls. And this is actually what comes up in the research. And there does seem to be this constant dialogue, really ever since the 2000s, in the media for sure, back and forth about open versus closed offices. And now there's even this dialogue going on in academic journals. And this whole sense of privacy that you bring up there is actually a major theme that shows up in the research. Um, now, there was one moment in social media recently that brought a storm of activity, a bunch of angry tweets and strings of sad face emojis in response to the idea of one very special office being turned into an open office. So no cubicles, no walls. So this was last year, 2019, when Mayor Bloomberg, running for president, tweeted out an idea. This is Megan McCarty Carino. She reports on workplace culture for Marketplace from American Public Media. Michael Bloomberg, you know, he tweeted that he was going to turn the east wing of the White House into an open office. So Megan did a story for Marketplace after this tweet went out, and she says the response was very clear. You know, it kind of lit Twitter on fire. Everyone was firing back, you know, nobody wants an open office. Don't torture a staff this way. There's a lot of complaints about op open offices. Okay, but Megan didn't just cover the tweet. She dug into the current research on open versus closed offices. So when I heard this segment on the radio, I reached out to see if she would share some of what she found. You know, I've seen figures that 70% of office workers work in an open office at this point. So the transformation has been pretty dramatic. Uh, you know, one source that I talked to worked at a company like this where they started with 10 employees in an open office kind of situation. And he said it, it was great. It was it felt really like they had a community. They were all there together. You know, someone wasn't it was very democratic. Um, it did foster the kind of thing that it was meant to foster when they grew to a certain size. Then it was just all the negative things started compounding all of the noise and the lack of privacy and 
and you know just the kind of chaotic atmosphere that that it engenders. And so some of these negatives are not so surprising. Things like sick days seem to increase, which is like okay, you're around more people. That seems reasonable. Um, frequently being interrupted by coworkers, as well as noise and visual distraction, are also common complaints. And some of the coping mechanisms that people have are to withdraw either psychologically or, you know, sometimes physically with headphones or, uh, you know, with these like blinder things. I don't know if you've seen this is one solution. It's almost like these horse blinder things for your desk. And there's another thing I've seen where people put bands around. It almost looks like um, like safety patrol, a big yellow sash that you wear that is an indicator to your other colleagues that you are in business mode and not to be interrupted. Interesting. I haven't uh, had the joy of working with either of those. Uh, the noise-canceling <laughs> headphones, uh, I've definitely seen that. I use them myself. And noise is interesting because it does seem to matter what the noise is. So there's actually some kind of noise that help us and improve concentration. A lot of people feel this way about coffee shops, for example. Megan is one of those people. Different kind of levels of noise have different effects on your ability to concentrate. So I actually, when I'm at work, I don't work in an open office. I, I do work at a cubicle, but still there are noise distractions. You know, I go use an app where I hear the sounds of a French coffee shop as my background for productivity. So those kind of like low, you know, gurgling noises in the background um, that don't kind of call your attention to any one noise, those are very good for concentration, whereas hearing your neighbor on the phone or hearing your neighbor playing a cat video, you know, a conversation like down the bench from you, that it's really impossible to not hone in on those things. I'm really bad about hearing conversations like two cubes over. Well, yeah. and that's the other thing that research shows is that the difference between office chatter and then being in the coffee shop is that you know that the next coffee table over from you is not a conversation you need to be involved with. And so you're less curious about it. it it's not as distracting. But also, also, there is this decibel sweet spot, and that's a noise level around 70 decibels. So for comparison, the average human conversation is about 60. A truck driving by, if you're standing on the street corner, that's about 80. And what we're looking for is that 70 decibel sweet spot. Uh, it's the level that you find in most coffee shops. Uh, washing machines and flushing toilets are also around 70. <laughs> we have a meeting room that just so happens to be under three different bathrooms. So if you ever book a room in that one conference room, all you hear is flushing toilets. It's whoosh, whoosh, because it's right underneath that room. And you notice that your, your productivity increases, no? No, no, no. <laughs> our humor increases, but our productivity decreases. Uh, well... That, that does buck the decibel rule, but, you know, I will take your N of one, <laughs> all right? Um, but also, it's not just that you can hear the chatter of your colleagues in an open office. It's also that noise privacy that you brought up earlier. And according to some, that is even more of an issue than the noise alone. It's not only that you can hear others, but now they can also hear your conversations. And, and, and actually, this idea of being concerned of people listening in on your conversations is at the core of one of the most fascinating studies recently. This was published in 2019 from Harvard Business School. This study looked specifically at how face-to-face -face interactions would change if the office broke down their walls, meaning got rid of their cubicles. Here's Megan again. And what they found was... In the open office situation, workers had far fewer face-to-face -face interactions. In fact, 73% fewer face-to-face -face interactions than they did when they were in cubicles. Any idea why? Well, it kind of goes back to one thing that you brought up earlier when you said we take down the walls, but then we kind of bring up our own walls with noise-canceling headphones and all these things like that. So one thing that could be going on here one of the authors from the study, Ethan Bernstein, he calls it the transparency paradox, meaning the more transparent the environment, the more privately that people behave. So think of kids passing notes in class because they know the teacher's listening. So to find out more, I got Ethan Bernstein himself on the phone, 
Now, he is the Edward Conard Associate Professor of Business Administration in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School. Here's Dr. Bernstein. I study human behavior. In particular, I study the increasingly transparent workplace and its impact on human behavior and therefore performance in organizations. Here's what he had to say on the open versus closed debate. What's, of course, funny probably to someone who studied the history of this is we've been there before. So there's a little bit of back to the future in the designs that we're seeing. I think that when we talk about, quote unquote, the open office, the one consistency across time is it's put as open relative to whatever we consider traditional. So once the cubicles were seen as traditional, then tearing them down, quote, opening it up, then had this promise along with it that employees' face-to-face -face collaborations and teamwork would all increase. What we found is that the promise is not the reality. And this is after they took down the cubicle walls and then they put these sensors on the employees. And these sensors were shaped like name badges and they can detect when two people are facing one another and when they're talking to each other. At least in these two headquarters of Fortune 500 companies, both in the United States, when you move people from more closed to more open, face-to-face -face interaction declines. So face-to-face -face communication goes down, which is counterintuitive until you think about that transparency paradox and the whole issue of noise privacy, right? But there's more. There's more to their results. Despite the fact that now all these people are face-to-face, -face, they choose to communicate more electronically. So they're not communicating less per se. They're just moving their communication from face-to-face to an email, an instant message, et cetera. You could look at the results and, and see, well, maybe they kind of even out. People do less face-to-face -face communications, but then they almost kind of make up for it with email communication. But before we actually take it that far, we have to hear the final results of the study. It was also that there are some people we just choose to electronically communicate with most of the time, and there are some people with whom we choose to just interact with in a more live, face-to-face -face way. What we saw was that we didn't necessarily change our preferences for how we communicated. We just communicated with the face-to-face -face individuals less and we communicated with the online individuals more because of the shift in the office space. So actually, you end up losing a whole chunk of people. Bernstein elaborates a little bit here. Well, gee, I might have asked Emily this question because she was sitting next to me or across from me or I was running into her down the hall. But now that we're in this more open space and the costs of my interrupting her or rather having the conversation where everyone can see us having the conversation is higher, why don't I reach out to the expert that's in Hong Kong and ask that person over email the question I was going to ask Emily, because after all, that's the person who, who has the most knowledge on this topic in the first place. And we now have this world of international global communication where you can reach out to folks in Hong Kong and actually ask them the question yeah. without the cost of interrupting your colleagues. But you kind of lose that coworker relationship that you developed only through the human interaction. Yeah. So as the workplace continues to move in this direction, this virtual direction, I decided to speak with somebody who studies just that. Uh, my name is William Kramer. I am an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha in my second year. And Dr. Kramer specifically studies virtual teams and how people find their, quote, in-group in a virtual team. Now, an in-group, that just means the group that you feel that you belong to. We want to engage with them. We want to feel like we are part of something. And one of the cool things about virtual teams, you know, groups of colleagues who purely use the Internet or other remote forms of communication with each other, one of the cool things about these teams is that some of the most hot-button groupings have a tendency to kind of drop into the background with virtual teams. So we're talking about things like race, gender, age, and, and when these demographics are at the center of conflict, Kramer and his colleagues call them demographic fault lines. It's basically the same as an earthquake fault line. So it's something that it's there, it always exists, and it doesn't necessarily have to be activated, but when it is activated, it can have negative consequences. And he says that in face-to-face -face teams, these demographic fault lines, age, gender, and race, often show up as the most dramatic. A lot of the time you see that those are the types of fault lines that just are the worst. 
So Kramer ran studies on these fault lines, and in his studies on virtual teams for his dissertation, what he found was... They were not the main source of problems. So things like race and gender and age, they're no longer the most prevalent fault lines when the team is virtual. Instead, location, time zones, those kind of things, those become the stronger fault lines. So several of my team members I've never met once we started having a weekly meeting. So you can see each other's faces? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, yeah. And we had our laptops hooked up. Uh, but once we were able to see each other's faces, uh, it's really opened up dialogue between the people onshore and the people uh, that are uh, working remotely. So, I mean, we do have that element when you think about open offices. We have more virtual communication, but we also actually see everybody as an individual living, breathing human. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that regard, it's it seems like a pretty cool system that's starting to develop, actually. But we don't get that in the face-to-face -face settings. Even if you're only communicating purely or mostly through emails, you're still a face-to-face -face team, and those demographic fault lines are still going to play a major role. That's correct. So we can't say like, oh, because we communicate mostly with email, it's, oh, it's better for race relations, or oh, it's a more welcoming workplace for women. And, and actually, women are one of the groups who have come forward with open offices to say that they feel particularly uncomfortable in this, this open office setting that has reoccurred in society once again. Could you share more with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Megan McCarty Carino from Marketplace, she has more on this. This is some of what she uncovered when she did that story last year. Uh, women have reported in, uh, you know, several studies. There was a British study. There was a, um, a study out of New Zealand where women really didn't like open offices a lot more than men. They felt like they were being watched and observed. So, you know, this kind of lack of privacy and being out in the open, of course, has some benefits perhaps for productivity. But when people are not feeling comfortable in their office environments, that can really, you know, reduce productivity. There's a lot of challenges facing uh, making sure that everyone's comfortable and uh, everyone's able to uh, be as productive and creative as they should be. And so. not be distracted by other concerns. And, and then there's another group, according to some, that have become more at risk in these open office settings, and that's people with disabilities or other specific physical needs. And so it's true that getting rid of the cubicle walls might make it easier for getting around in a wheelchair. But other than that, there's just there's a lot about these open office schemes that just assumes that everyone can work in the same way, which just isn't true. It is very much one size fits all and a very small one size fits all in many cases. So that kind of ties it all back to the original concept here of the action office and how as it's gotten diluted, now you're starting to make everything a copy repeat sort of environment, but humans aren't copy repeat. Like what allows them to be as productive as possible isn't going to be the same. So if we're just going full open office or full cubicle, maybe there needs to be a, a happy medium in the middle. Right, the pendulum has swung so far, and you're right to bring up probes in the action office because, I mean, for me, that's why this part seems so, like, just so ironic and sad because if you remember Probst at the very beginning making that action office, it was made to work well within the constraints of an open office. And it was created in large part to meet the physical needs of Robert Probst himself. Remember that standing desk that they mentioned? Yeah, that wasn't just like a trendy design. Um, here is Joseph White again from Herman Miller to explain a little bit more about what I mean by physical needs. Uh, largely driven by, um, he had some back issues, and so sit remaining in a seated position for a long period of time was detrimental to his health. So at the very least, he needed a place where he could stand to work. And so rather than having something that was um, overly heavy um, and kind of locked in one place, he wanted to have something that would be more flexible and allow for a greater range. He, he was dealing with pain to some extent and to adapt around that he developed the standing desk and the action office one and we have now gone so far in the other direction somewhat on the stepping stones that he laid with the action office it's just like the the irony is just too much here's megan again i spoke to a source and 
she really found it medically difficult to be in that kind of an environment. It was really, you know, building up her stress. She had some kind of underlying medical issue. And it was one of the reasons that she left the company um, because she felt like just physically she was not able to cope in that environment. Yeah, it's we've definitely lost touch with the original solution that was being provided that could be tailored to all individuals. And something that has been brought up by uh, disability advocacy groups is sometimes the option that is then given to folks with disabilities is, well, you can work remotely, you can work from home. And then that absolutely isolates that whole population in all the ways that we've talked about in terms of virtual teams, the people who are going to be located in one room, they're going to create an in-group. The person who's distant is automatically going to be in an out-group. It just like, that's a problem. That is problematic. Yeah. And that's something that uh, I've seen. And I think as a team leader, I really take an effort in going out of my way to include uh, those who are uh, working remotely. And because you really, you never know as a team leader, you don't know why people are working remotely. Correct. So Dr. Bernstein from the Harvard Business School says that there is a little bit more hope now than there used to be at possibly making the work environment function for all people well. Because we have all of these devices now. And in fact, the study that we've been talking about from Harvard Business School, Bernstein says, was inspired by the fact that we now live in an age of wearable devices that can track all of our biological states and our physical movement. Most of this work that I just talked about was inspired by the presence of sensor data that is helping researchers in areas of well-being and public health. Now, if I take thermostat sensors and combine that with sensors that help me understand the quality of the air and the amount of light and the type of light and the type of sound. And I pair all of that with sensors that people are wearing in their Apple iWatches or with their you know, Fitbits or with any one of a number of other devices that we might have on our person at any point in time. You can understand how the architectural nature of where people are working affect their actual well-being And you can intervene in that and experiment with that in ways that are truly profound relative to what probes could have done. And that was the inspiration for what we did. We used these badges to record the face-to-face collaboration. Again, something that we couldn't have done even 10 years ago. So those badges that he mentions again, they're being used more and more to track human movement and then use it as a proxy for human emotions in these studies, kind of like the way that body language can give an approximation of a person's emotions. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, doing small uh, sample groups of, of an office, if you can get the technology to an affordable cost, it just makes sense. Um, and it's so cool that we now actually have this greater ability to gather quantitative data than we used to. So the methods of study are changing. Yeah. And that feels like a cool thing to be around for, you know? Yeah. And now with uh, the cost of computing that data, so much cheaper than it's ever been. So it's cheaper and we have more tools to do it now. Like, And I'll, I, actually, this is this is what Bernstein and his colleagues were trying to show when they wrote this initial paper. We thought we were writing, quite frankly, a methodological article. We weren't out there warring against the open office. We were just suggesting a different approach for analyzing it. The one thing I would hope that a more historical perspective on this question would do for us is help us stop swinging this pendulum from extreme to extreme in our arguments and quite frankly in our spaces. And I I personally believe that we are now at an era because of the technological advancement, because of the data we can collect where we have the chance to experiment with our office spaces and get farther along without this pendulum swing back and forth and back and forth so that we can just get better. It just makes sense, you know, instead of having the large spikes and valleys, if we can just stabilize the trend line. Spoken like a true data man. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless of how we get the information, once we implement the strategy There's something that's often missing from open office plans that Dr. Kramer brought up, and that is buy-in. And, you know, that is also part of why the schools with no walls didn't really take off in the 60s and 70s, at least according to my father. He said it was the teachers, not the students, who didn't buy into the new idea. The only problem occurs when 
you, you know, when you try to take that to scale using some pretty traditional ways of placing teachers. So you had a, you had a lot of uh, many districts at that time were uh, giving priority placement at certain schools to more senior teachers, not necessarily the teachers that were um, superior in their communication skills or knew how to use open space classrooms. That was not part of the bargain of the reassignment there. So then when they're placed in this environment, they had no control over the environment, they were meant to implement this plan that they didn't even help form, and they weren't on board. Sound familiar? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Uh, that's getting buy-in is the, uh, the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to play us out with a quote from Bob Probst. Here's Joseph White again. Remember, he's the director of Futures and Insights at Herman Miller, and he's reading from the book that Probst published the same year that the Action Office was released. That's 1968. The book is titled The Office, a Facility Based on Change. Here's Joseph. The total behavior of an organization, its goals, values, people, defines the true growth structure required. Appropriately, this is not just one thing. It is properly as variable as the difference between the structure of a rose and an oak tree. Both are alive, growing, obeying laws of total relative adjustment, but with different end goals. You know, we know the things that we need in order to make us feel safe, to give us a sense of achievement, a sense of purpose in the organizations that we join, and we can choose to design around those principles if we want to. And I think that if people were living by this and designing by this, um, the open versus closed debate would vanish. All right, Jason, that'll do it for us this evening. Thank you so much. Thanks, Emily. It's been a great time. (laughs) You've been listening to Made in the Middle, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We owe a big thanks to our special guest, Jason Schwartz, as well as Amy Osherman and Joseph White from Herman Miller. Thanks to the professors, Dr. William Kramer of the University of Nebraska, Omaha, and Dr. Ethan Bernstein of the Harvard Business School, as well as reporter Megan McCarty-Carino of Marketplace. Lastly... Thanks to my father, Gordon Freeman Newton. For this episode's listening party, we had a very special treat, Herman Miller-inspired sugar cookies from Cyclops Bake Shop in the original furniture city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can check out our Instagram for photos of this very special delivery. And the vintage photographs you'll find on our website and our Instagram are from the Herman Miller archives. Our podcast features original music by Ben So Lee and is produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Joshua LeBure, and Todd Hatton, with theme music by Nathan Blake Lynn. You can reach out to us through Instagram or Twitter with comments or citation requests. That's at KIOS Omaha. And of course, subscribe to the podcast and you'll get notifications of our newest monthly episodes of Made in the Middle. <laughs>